This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Concerns being raised now about Hamilton's light rail project and specifically about the timelines, which we are told are very tight. And uh, those who are supportive of the project are getting concerned right now that the province seems to be dragging their heels on this. At least that's the, the idea that some people seem to be getting out of this. Uh, the one, obviously, is about a, a motion that was passed by Hamilton City Council uh, a, a couple of months ago right now where they asked the province to move quickly on this, and they haven't got a response from them on yet. Paul Johnson is uh, with the City of Hamilton, of course. Uh, he is the, the project coordinator for LRT for the city. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us an update on this. How are you doing this morning, Paul? Well, you know, the Ticats are out of the playoffs, and my Packers lost their quarterback to a broken collarbone, so this feels like a Monday, Bill. It does. <laughs> Welcome to Black Monday, ladies exactly. and gentlemen. It, it just did not go well. But I hazard a guess we're not talking about that. So anyways, I'll come back on with uh, with Rick later. Let's talk sports. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, we can get into the Ticat thing later on, and, uh, and our condolences about Aaron Rodgers, too. Yeah. Uh, there was a motion passed by City Council, just to remind our listeners, a little while ago, and uh, they asked the, si- the province to consider having the ATU, that's the people that run the, uh, the Hamilton Transit System here, as owners and uh, operators and maintenance uh, crews on the uh, the LRT project. Uh, you expressed some concern at that time, so did Mayor Eisenberger. Uh, the council passed the motion anyway and sent that off to Queen's Park with the anticipation that they would respond to it quickly. Uh, my understanding is you haven't heard anything from them, Paul. Uh, so we haven't had a, a formal response, no, Bill. Uh, the direction was that uh, I was to, to talk with my staff counterparts at Metrolinx, and, which we did, and I do know that there have been lots of conversations about this. I mean, it's a big move. It changes the procurement model. It changes uh, a lot of things about this uh, this project that um, we've been working under assumption-wise for a while. So I'm not surprised that it wasn't uh, instantaneous, the, uh, uh, the answer. But, um, you know, we're all hopeful that we get something very soon just so that we can we can know what we're doing and move on. Well, let's talk about the impact that that motion would have, because I know that some people simply characterized it as saying, well, isn't that nice? Council's really kind of, you know, they've got the back of the ATU here, and they want them to be part of this. And isn't that, that's a great idea. And I suppose on a, on a conceptual basis it is. But there were implications to this, and I guess maybe the most important one, from my understanding, is the province had already started the, the procurement motion uh, ball rolling here right now. And uh, with this motion, th- that kind of puts us back to square one, doesn't it? Well, it uh, it could. Uh, the reality is it's not our procurement process, the hour being the city of Hamilton. So um, like all procurement processes, my assumption is you can speed them up uh, if you need to. So we need to we need to be careful that we don't fully project what's happening. But the reality is that uh, a, a request for qualifications was sent out uh, based on a design, build, finance, operate, and maintain approach which with a third party. So people were pre-qualifying themselves based on that. This would change that. Uh, it depends what elements, uh, uh, if the province does come back, and that's an if, they may say, no, we're going to continue as is. But if they did come back with a change, uh, it may change the uh, the RFQ, and that may have to be reissued, which, uh, you know, is, a, is about a four-month process, is my understanding. Let's bottom line that. For instance, if I'm one of those people that expressed interest in the province, Paul, I'm not, by the way, but if I, my, my corporation <laughs> were... Yeah, uh, I would have said, yeah. Here's I'm interested. I think I can provide this. Here's my ballpark idea of what I want to do. Here's my ballpark number. But if if the province comes back and says, whoa, 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 no, we've changed our minds now. We're going to let Hamilton's ATU uh, operate this thing and do the maintenance on this. That throws my numbers all out of whack. I'm I, I'm going to say, wait a second. This is not fair. You can't change the rules after the game started. 
Well, on, on this, it's, uh, it certainly is, it does add that complexity to it because this is uh, something where the operator and the maintainer of LRT is in place for uh, a period of about 30 years. So you're looking at a partnership model that includes constructors, which are here for obviously the construction period, and then you're looking at others that would operate and maintain for a much longer period. So there's uh, equity stake issues, there's the partnership issues. So it does, uh, it's, it's, it's it's not quite as easy as suggesting well one <laughs> one part you no longer want the snow tires so we take the snow tires out of the quote and away you go uh, it's not quite that uh, that simple so yes I think there would be some concerns raised and I know that that's part of the conversation that's happening is what does this do to the procurement model because those are exactly the same conversations we would be having as a city if we were procuring this um, I know Metrolinks and the ministry are doing the same thing but if you're narrowing the scope and that seems to be what City Council was asking. Uh, and basically, you're asking proponents to come forward and say, we want you to build this thing and then just go away. We're going to have somebody else look after it after that. That that pretty much narrows the number of people that might express interest, I would think. Uh, it could. Um, you know, it it, uh, it it just changes it. We need to remember, though, that what, um, you know, if it's all the operations and the maintenance, that's not something we've sort of seen in in Ontario, but we have seen pieces where the operations has been been removed and provided to the local transit authority, and that's taken place in both Toronto and Ottawa. So in both cases, uh, TTC and Toronto uh, are doing the operation side of their LRT built with Metrolinx, uh, and then in Ottawa, uh, OC Transpo is is handling the operations. Theirs isn't uh, quite the same funding model with Metrolinx, but uh, no doubt they're doing that way as well. So there are there are examples, and there is precedent for a different kind of procurement approach to this. So um, you know, I think we need to realize that does exist, but it changes the game after we had started, and for Metrolinx. And in the ministry, I think that's the important piece that they're looking at right now. But in those two models that you've just referenced, though, did the city not have to kick in some of the money towards capital cost? Uh, not in the case of, uh, of Toronto and certain Toronto projects. Uh, no, they're under uh, much the same uh, approach that we are. So, uh, uh, But they had, obviously, rail experience in Toronto and existing uh, rail operations, so it was seen as, as inefficient, actually, in that case, to have another operator come in and run rail in a city that already had it. Hamilton here, Ontario, with Mississauga and Brampton, uh, and the decisions that were made in Kitchener-Waterloo were really based on the fact that there isn't that operator already in place with rail knowledge and experience. So um, it would take some time to build that capacity. I'm not going to drag you into the political quagmire uh, that, that could exist at City Hall, Paul. But who voted which way and, and what motive or agenda they may have had? That's that's. Their business. We'll get into that another time with those people, not with you, because this, whatever they do gets thrown onto your desk and say, "Here, deal with this." And and that's where you are in this situation right now. Are you concerned about timing delays, though? That that with every day that passes, that you don't get a definitive answer from the province right now. You've got to be looking at that time that you actually, at some point, wanted to put shovels on the ground and wonder if that's going to be in jeopardy. So, in the big picture, we're we're still okay. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, this drifts too much into the later part of the fall, uh, then I become a little worried. I'm worried about schedule every day uh, and not just on this issue. So it needs to be clear that this is you know, just one of many things that, that, that hits our desk that may have an impact on schedule. We have been able to continue on with a number of things in terms of, of the design and, and what we're looking at, finalizing our, our what's called reference concept design, so uh, a model that we can provide to proponents to say, here's how you could build it and allow them to play around with that. That's all work that continues, Bill. But, you know, as we get closer to the end of the fall and into the end of the calendar year, 
uh, you know, the worry meter will go up a little bit. I would say right now we're still, uh, you know, still confident that uh, shovels will be in the ground in 2019. Um, but like everything else, uh, the more information and solid information we have, uh, the better off we are in terms of uh, keeping to schedule. Just to be clear, who are you waiting to hear from? Is this a Metrolinx decision or a province of Ontario decision? Well, they report to the Ministry of Transportation, so yeah. obviously they need to receive uh, political guidance, as would uh, uh, you know a department within the city. So um, Metrolinx obviously delivers, but this is a change. It has to get those types of approvals um, from a political perspective. So yes, this goes right up uh, right up the chain from their perspective. They do the work. They've uh, developed the analysis, and but obviously the Ministry of Transportation and uh, would need to make some decisions on this ultimately. There is another factor here that maybe a lot of people may not be aware of. I know you certainly are. Uh, Metrolinx itself, the, uh, the the agency, the arm's length agency that's uh, that's taking charge of this whole project for the province now, uh, is in a state of, shall we say, flux, change. Uh, they've obviously had a change at the top. Uh, there's been a new person appointed. I'm not even sure how much uh, you know work they've done on that. Uh, we're told a number of other people have left Metrolinx in the last little while, engineers and other experts in other fields. Uh, are those changes holding this up right now? Uh, no, not at all. And in fact, uh, on on our side, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, at the at the top uh, rungs of the organization, there's certainly been some changes. But uh, in terms of the folks that we work with uh, on a daily basis, uh, they haven't changed. And uh, we're really pleased to be working with Andrew Hope as our director. But uh, the folks that uh, he reports up to. Um, uh, you know, continue to understand this project and move it forward. So we haven't seen any slowdown from that perspective. Uh, and the good news is that most of our technical work is actually done through a contract that Metrolinx uh, put out to the market a, a while ago to to, re- to have a technical advisor. So our engineering work is being done um, by a, a private sector organization that was procured a while ago. So again, our technical elements of this are not being slowed down either. What about numbers, though? I mean, you can't really give us a hard and fast number about cost now until this next phase is is, is completed or at least undertaken anyway. Uh, so that that's hold every, everything up at this stage, even those that may still be sitting on the fence either politically or, or, or otherwise about this are going to say, well, how much is this going to cost? You, you can't really give them that answer until you hear back from the province. Correct. So it does... Um, you know, sort of change a little bit of, of that approach. There are some things that we can continue to work on. Uh, there are some elements of this that won't change, whether it's a third-party operator or ourselves. But uh, in terms of pulling together a decent package to give council the information that they actually requested at a subcommittee meeting uh, not long ago, uh, we really need to know. We need to know first what we're building. We now know that. <laughs> now we need to know exactly what the model of procurement and operations look, uh, procurement is and then what the operations looks like, and, and then we can start to make some um, uh, some better projections on in terms of what the cost looks like. So, uh, you know, like everything else, <laughs> the more we know uh, and the sooner we know it, uh, the better we can provide some advice and, and the better we can provide some solid uh, uh, answers to those questions. Uh, from uh, Melanie, who's listening to our conversation here, she just emailed me at bkelly at 900chml.com. Uh, those that expressed interest to in the province of Ontario, and you don't know who those people are yet, Paul, I get that, did they bid on the McMaster to uh, Eastgate Square project or the McMaster to the Traffic Circle project? Uh, the decision to uh, 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 to move forward to to Eastgate was uh, 
um, was taken after the RFQ was released, but I believe information was provided to the market about that uh, motion by council, which was supported by the ministry. So these folks would be aware that kind of decision in terms of length is less um, is less of the issue as opposed to uh, a complete change in terms of the procurement model. So the whether operations and maintenance is in and out is a far bigger concern to these organizations than um, than adding uh, a technical piece of it. That's just an extension. Those are easier numbers to rerun. But is it not going to change the number, though? I mean, we're, you know, we're going from the traffic circle to Eastgate Square now. So there was no numbers provided. Uh, what we need to realize is this is a two-stage approach. So at this stage, it was really can you do you have the technical ability to build a project? And whether it was 11 kilometers with a 2-kilometer spur or 14 kilometers east to west, uh, that's not going to be the issue. So the request for qualifications was not about money, and it was not about the overall size of of this project. So none of those organizations would have been bidding, uh, as my understanding, in, in terms of numbers. In fact, the in-market period, the real period where they build those costings, uh, is actually an eight-month process or so because they have to do a lot of technical work, including running some of their own um, uh, investigations to make sure that they can price this accordingly. They simply would not be able to do that in less than four months. Uh, as you're waiting for an answer right now, are you making phone calls too? I mean, you know, the uh, the, the members, the government members, Ted McMeekin and, and the Premier herself, for that matter, and the Transportation Minister, have taken an expressed interest in this project, obviously, because of the full funding aspect. Uh, you would think that they would uh, try to give us answers as quickly as possible to try to move this project forward, yet the, the silence from Queen's Park is rather eerie at this stage right now. Are, are you getting phone calls? Are you getting phone calls returned? Um, so, you know, my, my work is to work with Metrolinx, uh, from a staff perspective, and, and obviously we chat all the time. So I've been providing them details, for instance, on the dates of our meetings, because we have a process here, whatever comes forward, obviously I need to report back to council as to how those discussions went. Their motion wasn't, uh, here's what it is, it's to go and see what the reaction might be from the province and to bring that back. So I need to bring that back, and we have a legislative approach here, and we have timelines and deadlines and everything else. So I've been providing that information as we go, uh, but obviously the uh, the political conversations are not ones that I engage in, but uh, the conversations that I have with Metrolinx are, are regular, and I just keep providing them the timelines for our next meetings. Paul Johnson uh, with the City of Hamilton, of course, uh, riding shotgun or riding herd, I guess, over the the Metrolinx uh, uh, aspect of this, too. Paul, my condolences again about the Packers, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You bet. Thanks. Take care. That's uh, Paul Johnson, of course, from the City of Hamilton, as uh, we like what's going on with the LRT project. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Back in the uh, beginning of the summer, we uh, did a five-part series uh, on The Bill Kelly Show here on CHML about the opioid crisis, and uh, we covered an awful lot of the aspects of it. Uh, policing, obviously, social service work, uh, the, the medical element of it, which, of course, is paramount in this discussion, but also the implications that it's having on other parts of the community. And uh, the city, obviously, has been studying this. Uh, the, the public health department and, of course, the city manager's office have been looking into this. And uh, there are going to be some things that are going to be attempted here to try to deal with the opioid crisis. Um, it's one of the things being bandied about right now is the idea of a safe injection site, uh, which is meeting with, uh, shall we say, mixed reaction from uh, some of the area businesses. Because it is going to have an impact. Downtown Hamilton, uh, although we can talk about some of the rejuvenation that's gone on in that area in the last little while, 
has uh, gone through some uh, some pretty rough times uh, with a variety of different things, with high crime rates over the period of time, uh, with uh, uh, drug addictions, with high crime that was seen to be happening. Police seem to have a handle on an awful lot of it, but the opioid crisis just doesn't seem to be getting under control right now. I mean, you look at the numbers on here, and it's it's staggering when you look at the number of people that have actually uh, gone to hospital. Uh, for the week of September 25th to October the 1st alone, 31 people in Hamilton sought help at emergency rooms for suspected overdoses, according to the city's opioid information monitoring system. 52 Hamiltonians died of opioid overdose last year. That's a death rate nearly double the provincial average. So it's a problem province-wide, but it's an extreme problem here in the Hamilton area. So with whatever is going to be proposed right now, what about input from those that are impacted by this in those neighborhoods, and specifically the business improvement areas downtown? Well, to uh, get some feedback on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Carrie Jarvie, who is the Hamilton Downtown uh, BIA coordinator, and uh, she's uh, obviously well-versed in what's been going on and the implications of. Carrie, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your perspective and what you've seen and what you've heard from your uh, your BIA members about the opioid crisis. So we found an increase in the amount of um, drug paraphernalia that you find. There's been an increase in overdose, and I think in the lower city as a as a greater whole, I think there's been a a, a, a larger um, amount of of drug use that's been noticed. Um, we don't have a unified, I'd say, opinion between our members as far as a safe injection site, but we've, um, we're happy to be part of the process that the city engaged in. Are, are your members confident? Do they feel good about the fact that they're being included in this conversation? Yes. Yeah, that was it. Was it's nice to be included in the conversation because it's something that, uh, that many people in the lower city um, work with every day. And, and those are the stories that, that I've heard, and I'm, certainly you do, obviously, in talking to some of the members of the BIAs. Uh, about about what's happening, and and it can be a rather sordid tale sometimes about you know people going out to their cars when they close their shops and seeing somebody in the alley behind them or, or in a parking lot, etc. And and the, obviously there's a concern about that person's well-being and that person's health, but there's also a greater health concern and a greater uh, I guess public awareness concern about what's going on right now. How do your members view what's happening right now, and 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 are they? Are they participating in, in the discussion about possible solutions to this? The ones that we have heard of, have heard from, have wanted to make sure that, that people did know that they they were aware that there's been an increase and that it is um, it is it's not pleasant to come into work in the morning and and, and find somebody who has overdosed or is um, in trouble. Uh, nobody um, wants wants to have to um, like that's that's pr- troubling for for most business owners and um, you know employees going to work. And I think they've they've recognized that that something has to happen. What that is. I mean, it's it's not in our realm to know, but wanting to make sure to say, you know, we please include us because this is a this is affecting everybody, and we need to make sure that there are safe places and that people are getting the help that they need. And and they realize the problem. I, I don't want to go too deeply into the history, but we all know the downtown cores and Hamilton's was was one of them that suffered an awful lot uh, some years ago because of perception. Uh, and and some of that was very legitimate, frankly. I mean, there were higher crime rates. There was a concern about about public safety in some of those areas of the downtown core. I, police, I think, have addressed that or tried to anyway. Uh, and and we've seen some positive results as a, as a result of that. We've seen a rejuvenation downtown right now. But is there a concern right now that uh, that you don't want a sense of deja vu? Like here we go again, another crisis, and people are going to say, "Well, I don't want to go downtown anymore." 
I think you'd be surprised actually how many um, services are already integrated into the downtown core, even with the rejuvenation, I mean, low crime rates. Um, you know, I walk around downtown all the time, feel safe as safe can be. Um, I think that you'll find that even with the, all the rejuvenation and, and, the re, and all of the popular businesses and things that are happening downtown, you, um, we still have some integrated um, health services, like some harm reduction strategies are, are right within our BIA area, and they're integrated well that you don't, you don't know that they happen so someone is able to get the help that they need and not they, they don't feel that they're being um, stigmatized or marginalized, and our business members feel, um, don't even know that they're there in most cases. And, and that's the result of uh, the, the work by the city and by police services uh, in conjunction, obviously, with the BIAs to establish that, that, that safety net and to make sure that that's in place right now. For sure. But is the public aware of that? Is the public uh, aware of the fact that, that, that this is working, this coordinated effort is ongoing? I hope so. I hope it's. I hope it's one of those things that it happens and you um, you benefit from it without even knowing that it's there. Um, the fact that there is, you know, a police presence that we've had um, cleaner streets. We have a lot more activity. People, you know, going about and that people are being able to get the services that they need and nobody knows that it's happening. I think that's actually a really a great thing because it it makes sure that everybody is able to get what they need without anybody feeling less. Um, feeling uncomfortable or, you know, not serviced. At some point, the city is going to come forward with recommendations. I mentioned off the top, uh, Carrie, that that there's been some discussion about safe injection sites, for instance. Uh, it's it's going to be impossible to get uh, uni- unanimity on this sort of thing right now, but is that a discussion that's ongoing with BIAs right now about the possibility and ramifications of? It is, and I think if you look at the if you look at the, um, the the heat maps of where drug use is, it is still lower city, but it's a predominant area. Um, so most likely a downtown site would be, uh, if they were to do a safe injection site, could be quite likely. I think for us, it's integration. It's making sure that it is integrated with the neighborhood and it is not, um, it's in an area that it will actually be used and will be, um, and it doesn't infringe on their neighbors. Um, like I said, we've had successful harm reduction strategies already happening downtown that you don't know that they happen, and they're um, and it it fits in with the neighborhood, and that's what we need to make sure we continue, so that everybody's getting what they need without having um, the stigma or anything, like so that they're actually being used, and our members are able to keep doing their businesses, and everybody can you know work together. Stigma. There's the word that uh, that I think we need to discuss here because that's that's obviously going to be a factor in this. Uh, I don't know that too many members of uh, local businesses downtown are going to put their hands up and say, "Oh, put that site beside my place," nope. uh, because there's still a stigma. Is is that still prevalent? Is that still something a uh, uh, an obstacle that needs to be overcome? It could, and it's what does it look like? I think that's also the thing is that, I mean, we don't know if they are to approve a safe injection site. What does it look like? What are the hours served? What are, what, you know, is it, if, is it integrated that you don't know that it exists, like a needle exchange program that already exists in our area that you don't know is there? Then is it going to be bothersome? You know, if there's going to be increase in drug deals right outside the front door and it's going to it's going to be more invasive to the neighborhood is that going to be helpful for anybody because it also increases the the risk to the person who is trying to be safer using using their chosen substance because that's oftentimes there's two different uh, mindsets on this i mean i can remember the debate about methadone clinics downtown and 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 there was a pushback from an awful lot of local businesses that said well we don't want that we don't need that yet you'd hear from public health and said look at it could work if it's done properly, et cetera. 
Uh, oftentimes you have to forge ahead and do these sorts of things, and, and hopefully people will see the 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 value in them as uh, as time goes on right now is is that what's at play here? Well, and it is. It's the key is being done properly because that that's one thing that I think has been a, probably a more of a struggle for us to be integrated into our community is is the methadone clinics. I mean, there it is. It can change based on ownership. It can change based on on time of day on how how much it's integrated within to our community. So that's something that you, it is it is something that we have to make sure we consider and that we're keeping um, that we're keeping engaged with the city on to make sure that you know it is integrated. How much uh, coordination are you working with here with Hamilton Police Services on this? I mean, we talked about the action teams and and the increased presence downtown and and the impact that that's had on and on, I think frankly on people's perception of downtown and certainly on on the business owners' perception of downtown. Uh, and and I agree with you. I mean, it's 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 safe. It's you know we walk downtown too. You know, my wife has a business downtown. I mean, we're we understand that there has been vast improvement in what's going on right now. Uh, but police service and that have to play a part in this. Public health have to play a part in this as well. Who's at the table right now when you're having these discussions? Are all those players there? They are. They are. From based on the study that was, and I, I think the city would be able to give you more information on this. But that was that was who was at the table. Was it, it included um, a really great cross section? I would say of people um, engaged on on the discussions about safe injection site. I don't really think they missed anybody from past users right through to police services and paramedics. So I feel it was um, a very a robust group of people. So give me the, give me the read on, on how those people in your organization in the downtown BIA who've invested their blood, sweat, and tears into local businesses, how are they viewing this right now? With some trepidation, are they embracing this as a possible solution, or are they looking at this as, as a consequence they'd prefer not to have to deal with? Well, I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody really wants to deal with this. Like, I think it's something that nobody wishes happens. I think it's something that they realize that we are in an area that is well-serviced. We do have a lot of um, a lot of government agencies and, and service structures around us that does make us more likely to have, um, to have higher use. I think I, anybody, most people who work downtown understand we are downtown core. As much as we are um, one of the better and safer downtown cores, it is still downtown and you still have a great mix of people. Um, so I think they want people to be as well serviced as they could be and be as healthy as possible. I don't know anybody who works downtown that doesn't, you know, is really not caring about their neighbor or, you know, the, the person on that, it's, that they pass on the street. One of the things, I guess, that would work uh, to the advantage of those who are supportive of this sort of an idea, though, is that uh, uh, you're not inventing the wheel here. I mean, there are other communities in other parts of the country that have been down this road and have tried these projects with varying amounts of success, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there are some templates that you could borrow from and, 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 you know, and pick up the phone and say, hey, what did you guys do? Does it work? And before you guys go down that road, uh, you've got some, I think, some rather important data that, uh, that you could use. That is really the hope, is that, that they do, that there is some, some great models out there that do give us some statistics and some ability to see what has happened and what, um, what might be a, an effective strategy for us to start with, or the city to start with, sorry. The other element to this, too, of course, and, and I, I just, I'm looking at the Vancouver model over the weekend, Carrie, and I know mm-hmm. you've studied this and you're mm-hmm. familiar with what's going on there, too. Uh, for those that might have some reticence about saying, well, you know, we don't want a safe injection site at X location on, on John Street or King Street or whatever the case might be, uh, what some communities are doing is actually having mobile uh, injection sites uh, that do travel from place to place within the core, obviously. And, of course, this is, we have to mention, by the way, and this comes into, I guess, dealing with stigma, 
Uh, it's staffed by public health officials, uh, so it's 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 not done on an arbitrary basis. These are trained professionals that are overseeing the work that goes on there, and that should, I would think, allay some of the concerns that people might have. I, I would hope so. Um, based on the, the the reading that I've done and the, the models that you look at, it that is what they're finding, and that it is um, it's not trying to get somebody to stop using uh, a drug. It's to have opportunities to stop. Like they do give them information, but a lot of times it's just to make them safer. Which then the intent is to make the neighborhood safer around them. Um, you don't have the litter. You don't have the um, e- e- the the risk of overdose out on the street. Well, yeah, and and the idea about finding syringes in back alleys and things of that nature, and that 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 sort list of details that can go on. Uh, but I guess there has to be a realization uh, that this is not going to get fixed overnight. I mean, this this was a problem that was a long time in developing, mm-hmm. uh, and you're absolutely right. You can't go up to somebody on the street to, that, and simply say, stop doing that. Uh, they can't in many cases because right. of the addiction. You can lead them in that direction, and you can counsel them, and you can show them a way that, look, at these are the people you can talk to. But there has to be a short-term solution to their problem right then and there, and then possibly some work towards a long-term solution. That's that's going to take a lot of time. This is the thing. is I think this is starting the discussion of a process that needs to happen, and I think that that's where this is. they've been quite forward-thinking in, in who they have engaged with and the thoughts of where where Hamilton can go to make sure that everybody is as safe as possible. Well, and maybe we're smarter now than we were a few years ago, Carrie, that you know, instead of simply demanding from police or city officials, make that problem go away. Uh, we understand that there has to be a process put in place right now, and there's, there's a, a two-pronged solution to this that uh, that has to be put in place. And uh, it, there's, there's still going to be some rough times before we get to where we want to be here. There is, and I think it's the whole thing is to make sure that, you I mean, community, community is best when it's best for everybody. And that's what, I mean, we're still a community. And so it's how, how, do, we, how do we make sure that we are doing the best we can for everybody in our, in our neighborhoods? What's the time frame on this? Uh, you, you guys are talking about this right now. The city and public health are talking about this. Police services are at the table right there. Uh, you want a solution last week. I mean, you know, this is this is the numbers here are staggering when you look at the provincial average, and then you look at some of the instances here in Hamilton. Uh, it's obviously a bigger problem here than it is in many other communities. So, in as much as we, uh, I think, have come to that realization that this is going to take a while to to do something about it. Uh, you want action like right away to at least say, okay, what's the plan? Let's start seeing some results here. Yeah, and I think that that's the report that will be going to um, the Board of Health, and then that will be the, the the start of the process. I think it's something that I don't think we can just jump into overnight. We can't just say that this is exactly what should happen tomorrow, let's go. I think that, I mean, we're set up with with due diligence and, and processes, and I think that's what they're following, and I think that it's just um, making sure that that process is, is followed. And, and so it will be, once it goes to the public health, that will be the next step. Can you can you sell this to your members if, in fact, this is the template that they're going to use? I mean, I, as you say, there's never going to be unanimity on this, but there's a, there are also varying degrees of, of opposition to this. There are some that may not agree with it, some that may be downright opposed to it and, and, and be adamant about that. Well, and this is where I, we... We've been given we've given them the opportunity to engage. Uh, I think that there's I mean I have 453 businesses in our area. Am I going to get all of them to agree on any everything? No. Um, do I? <laughs> that, think- that was Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't think that I mean, I'm not going for unanimous um, unanimous unanimous vote on that. I think I think 
you think there are people are aware that there's a problem, and I think with the opioid crisis, it's even more prominent that there's a problem. So I think it will be. Um, I think people understand that there's a solution. I think they look to us to advocate for a solution that works best for everybody, and that's what we're. You know, that's why we really are, are happy to be invited to the table and are able to sit and and say, you know what? Yes, this is. You know, this this is what has worked best with things that have been integrated into our community. These are some of the issues that we've had. By the way, we've had this discussion, obviously, and you've been paramount on this with the downtown BIA, uh, and you mentioned that the numbers indicate that this is a lower city problem, essentially. Uh, not that it doesn't happen in other parts of the city, but but the, the numbers are, are more frequent, of course, in the lower city. Are, are other BIAs taking part in this as well, the the International, Barton, yeah. Ottawa, et cetera, and, of yeah. course, the Westdale area? For sure. Um, for, yes, I know for sure um, International Village and Barton have been both. I mean, if you look at the the statistics and the, the demographics, those our three BIA areas are the ones that mm-hmm. would be the most logical, I would say. Good luck with this, Carrie. Thank you. I know I know the residents. I know your members are concerned about this. I know you're concerned about this too. And uh, the sooner we can come up with a coordinated effort there, the sooner we can start making some inroads into this. I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Carrie Jarvie, of course, from the downtown, uh, downtown uh, Hamilton BIA. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on with NAFTA. On Friday, we told you that uh, the negotiations were beginning once again in earnest in Washington uh, between the three parties to try to revamp the NAFTA deal. Remember, Donald Trump said he wanted to tweak it uh, way back when. Uh, tweaking, I think, has taken on a whole different meaning given some of the things that have been proposed by the U.S. side over the last little while. So much so that some observers are now suggesting that the U.S. team, under the uh, guidance of uh, President Trump, are actually trying to scuttle the deal and scuttle the negotiations so that Trump can come back and say NAFTA has failed. Interesting idea. Interesting proposal. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Patrick LeBlond, Associate Professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs in the University of Ottawa. Patrick, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, My pleasure. Let's uh, talk a little bit about this. There's a piece in the New York Times over the weekend, too, that suggested that uh, the Trump administration is taking the same tack towards NAFTA as they do with uh, many other what they consider to be controversial ideas, and that's simply, okay, tear it up and uh, we'll fix it somewhere down the road. Is that what's happening here? Uh, well, if you if if we read the, the the media, that that seems to be the case. Uh, everyone is sort of trying to read the tea leaves here, exactly as to uh, what is what, what it is that uh, Donald Trump and uh, U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer are trying to do. Is it really that uh, on the on the one hand they're they're kind of putting all these demands, hoping that they can gain some kind of leverage, and then say, look, you know, we got a good deal for 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 America. Or are they making these outrageous demand, uh, forcing you know Canadians and Mexicans to to leave the table and saying, well, look, you know they 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 they, they don't want to they they do not want to compromise. Uh, it's it's Canada's and Mexico's fault. Uh, we did our best, uh, but uh, clearly the, this is not a good agreement. They don't want to um, you know uh, give us anything that 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 it would be good for the the United States. So therefore, that's the you know we I, I, you know Trump would say I'm left with no choice. I I have to leave NAFTA. 
and then uh, we would have uh, probably some kind of uh, chaos in, in, in North America as a result of that, because I can only imagine uh, a scenario where there would be lawsuits uh, left, right, and center, and everyone trying to figure out you know, whether he has the authority or not. To, to leave NAFTA on his own or whether he needs congressional approval. And that's that's part of the debate that's going on in the states. I know we, we tend to be obviously kind of concerned about what's going on in this side of the 49th parallel, Patrick, but you're absolutely right. Uh, a number of congressional leaders on the, uh, the Sunday morning political shows down in the states were saying, wait a second, he can't do that. Now, and again, that's open to discussion and debate, so this is not going to go away anytime soon, and I guess it's not going to be decided anytime soon. No, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it, it, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, we even read in some reports that, uh, in fact, the negotiators uh, who are at the tables uh, are very uncomfortable with uh, the demands that have been made by, in a way, the White House and and and, and Mr. Lighthizer, uh, given that, in fact, some of them were 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 negotiators for NAFTA the first time around, and 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 tend to view um, uh, free trade agreements as overall something good that you know you you. Neg- Negotiate in good faith, and you you try to find a way that that ultimately is a win-win-win for everyone. Uh, but clearly, some of the demands are, are so outrageous that that it's it's you know I I don't know how they can kind of keep face while going to negotiations, uh, and 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 try to really negotiate something when they say, oh, for instance, uh, let's have a sunset clause uh, so that in five years NAFTA will will disappear unless we all agree to keep it. Uh, which, as many have, have mentioned, would lead to tremendous uncertainty. You know, if a business, you can imagine a, an automobile uh, company trying to say, okay, are we going to spend, I don't know, billions of dollars building a new uh, assembly plant somewhere in North America, uh, but not knowing whether in five years from now uh, the, the rules of the game will be the same. So, well, what's going to happen? Well, that investment will never take place, or if it takes place, it'll take place somewhere else than in North America. So, so this will almost have the same kind of effect as actually leaving uh, NAFTA. So it's, 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 it's not clear what's going to happen. Certainly, the Mexicans and the Canadians have, have, have made it clear that you know, they're, they're going to stay at the negotiating table. They're not going to leave. In a way, if someone's going to leave, it's going to be Trump, and, and they will make sure that uh, he is to blame if ever the negotiations fail and if ever there is this kind of limbo situation as a result of, of, of the President Trump signing uh, an executive order pulling the United States out of NAFTA. Uh, so that, you know, it, it, in a way, the failure would rest very clearly with, with Trump and, and, and Mr. Lighthizer. But uh, uh, politics aside in this situation, though, uh, Robert Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross are now they're not directly at the negotiating table, but they're certainly involved in their they're circling the table. These are pretty smart guys and with a pretty strong business background and at and, and the highest level. They've got to know that these kind of tactics are are. are, are well, they're not beneficial, and they, they're hurting everybody. And they must also understand that if the U.S. pulls out of NAFTA, as Trump is threatening to do right now, that there are going to be serious implications on that side of the border, too. Well, that's what you would think. But, you know, given the way they're acting and what they're saying, it, it, it sounds like they don't. Uh, let's not forget that Mr. Lighthizer has, has basically had a career in working for the steel industry uh, and, and, and basically fighting for protectionism for the, the U.S. steel industry. So, you know, it's in his bones. And, and let's not forget also that, uh, you know, this is the same person who about 10 years ago uh, penned an op-ed in uh, the New York Times uh, accusing John McCain of not being a real conservative uh, because he was pro-free trade. Uh, Mr. Lighthizer wrote that a real 
conservative in the United States as someone who adopts nationalist trade policies, which basically means protectionism. Mm -hmm. uh, so these people really seem to believe, as many do, that you know we live in a we live in a world, I guess, like 200 years ago, where exports are good and imports are bad. Whereas today, it's clear that both are important. And, you know, imports can be as important for a company's competitiveness as the fact that it can export its products or services. Uh, you know, on on a, on a different market. But you know, the, again, the, the 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 Mr. Trump, Mr. Lighthizer, and Mr. Ross seems to be seem to be stuck in 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 kind of this old way of thinking uh, that many people do because you know they 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 look at the economy the same way that they look at a company. You know, so basically, buying stuff is a cost, selling stuff is is a revenue. So therefore, we need to export more uh, in order to gain more revenues. But that that's not necessarily how things work. And, and also, we have to understand that for some companies, you know, if they can import from Canada, that actually, or from Mexico, that can make them uh, more competitive in the U.S. market against Chinese uh, companies, or uh, they can be more competitive if they export to the, the European market, you know, because the economy, having become uh, globalized as it is, yeah, the, both, both these elements are important. You need to look at the overall value added, and which is very different than than and the way that Mr. Trump, uh, Ross, and Lighthizer look at the world. I, I mentioned at the start of that discussion there, uh, Patrick. I said politics aside, but maybe we should get politics involved in this because I think it's it's interwoven through a lot of the things that are happening right here. Uh, because I, what what what. Lighthizer and Trump and, and Ross are advocating right now may well appeal to that disenfranchised auto worker in Ohio or in Michigan right now that says, yeah, buy American, let's get those jobs back here. But but Lighthizer and Ross, and, and they're, they're, they're supposed to be smarter than that, aren't they? They understand that there are global implications to this as well. They, you know, those people in Michigan and Ohio may not understand that, but they should. Well, they should, but uh, it's really not clear the way they're behaving that that they do, uh, and 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 you know we should not be surprised that Mr. Trump doesn't understand this because Mr. Trump doesn't you know even though he might do international business, having you know hotels and and properties with his name on, uh, this is not about you know he he's not a trader he he doesn't no. trade in anything you know in fact he he you know he he buys stuff from China and then puts his name on it and and sells it to Americans and others around the world that's what he does. Uh, so it's kind of surprising in a way that that he, he should see those things as being negative, given that you know he's one of the 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 the, the people who benefit from imports. But I, I guess in his in, in his mindset that that still doesn't resonate. So you're right to say that we need politics in this because um, if if we're going to avoid this sort of disaster scenario that that we can envisage, uh, we're going to need uh, strong pressures and lobbying and 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 and, and, and sort of a, a a big push, not only from from Canada and Mexico, but mainly from uh, you know the automobile sector in the U.S., uh, agricultural sectors, other in a way uh, sectors that that benefit from NAFTA, and and they have to mobilize very strongly, not only at, at the state level, but especially in, in Washington with Congress, and say, look, you know, you you are the, the in a way the the, the the, the last bastion that can stop Trump from doing anything like this, and 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 therefore it's up to the Republicans and the Democrats to to really stand up and tell Mr. Trump that you know pulling out of NAFTA is not in 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 the United States' interest. Uh, that you know modernizing NAFTA in a way that benefits uh, in over in general all three countries is the way to go. And and for those workers in Ohio or Michigan 
who feel that going back to how things were in the 1960s or 70s is going to solve everything, they're not. I mean, if these companies are not going to take advantage of the fact that we have an integrated market in North America, they're not going to build more plants in the U.S. They're going to build plants in, in Eastern Europe, in, in Asia, or in Latin America. That's what they're going to do. Uh, so that those, or if they are going to build uh, plants, they're going to build more automated plants and, and, and not use workers. That, that's, that seems to be the reality of what's going to happen. So, you know, either we face the, the fact that, you know, we cannot go back uh, to the past, uh, and therefore, let's make sure that we have an agreement uh, that is in line with, you know, to, the, today's 21st century real- reality. The way things have gone here in the last couple of weeks, especially, and the way that the, the Canadian contingent, including the prime minister, have responded, I, I find interesting, Patrick. Uh, you know, because things have been tossed at him right now. You know, we're going to tear up the deal. Uh, we want a sunset clause into this whole thing. We want to kill your supply management deal. And each and every time these these uh, things get tossed at, at the prime minister, it, his reaction seems to be like sticks and stones. Well, you know, that's not going to bother me. I'm still going to be at the table. You can't scare me. You can't intimidate me right now. Is is that the proper tact to be taking when, when these kind of tactics are being used? I, I think so, uh, because, you know, otherwise you're playing into Trump's hand. Uh, you know, like we've seen it with North Korea when there been, there's been a response by the North Korean leader and then basically uh, Mr. Trump's doubled down. Uh, we see it in, in some cases with, with members of Congress that, that Trump starts attacking. We've seen it with NFL players. So it's, it's basically the, the best strategy for Mr. Trump is, is, is not to react. It's a little bit like with a child uh, that, you know, if you react, you kind of fuel the anger, you fuel the excitement. Uh, whereas if you don't react, it's like basically he, he gets bored and then moves on to the next target, uh, and 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 I think that's the right ad- the, the right strategy to you know in a way keep Mr. Trump as far as possible from those negotiations. And yes, they can make all the most ridiculous claims that that they want and 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 ask for things that for sure Canada and Mexico will never agree to, and the Americans know that they'll never agree to this. Uh, but you know again. Uh, I, I think that you know the, the Canadians and Mexican strategy is, is to hold together and, and say, look, if, if the American, we're, we're going to keep negotiating, and we you know we can put aside those things for now and focus on other things and keep the negotiations going, and then basically force Trump and company to to leave the table if they if they're unhappy. Otherwise, you know they, they'll still the Canadian and, and Mexican negotiators will show up and and sit at the table, and if their American counterparts are not there, well, it's going to be America's fault. Which which seems to be the tack. I mean, again, to go back to that piece in the Times over the weekend, they suggested that the body language of the U.S. negotiators was was rather sheepish. There was a lot of shoulder shrugging going on. Like, <laughs> my boss told me to say this, and my heart's not really in this. So you got to wonder just how long this this charade's going to go on. Well, let's hope that it's not going to go on for very long, because the the longer it goes, the more uncertainty it creates. And um, you know, if again, if you're a company looking to invest or and spend money in, in, in North America, whether it's Canada, U.S., or Mexico, well, now you're basically just waiting, right? If, if you had planned to invest hundreds of millions of dollars or ten millions of dollars or billions of, of dollars, you're, you know, you're, you're just going to wait. It's like, let's wait and see what happens because Trump may pull out. There may be no, no NAFTA. We don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, we're not going to spend those amounts of money that technically uh, we, would, we, we would be in for the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and, and, and ultimately that means it 
jobs that that are not going to be created and less economic activity and less economic growth and you know certainly if i were congressional members who are facing elections uh, next next fall that would worry me and and i would you know put a lot of pressure on mr trump not to pull out of nafta but actually get a, a a deal a good deal for everyone quickly and then after that of course you know there will be losers there is no way that any everyone can win when it comes to free uh, free trade agreements that that's understood but you know let's try to find a deal that will make as many people as possible winners and then let's find other policies that can de- deal in the way with the losers and 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 uh, you know help them transition to 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 something else where ultimately they can also gain for uh, uh, you know a more open uh, North American economy. It's interesting uh, those goodwill tours that uh, the Prime Minister and and uh, I guess Finance Minister Morneau and others uh, have done over the last six or eight months. Uh, Patrick, I guess have laid the groundwork for that to try to create a, an alliance between some of the the uh, especially governors of those states that do it off a lot of trading with Canada right now, and let them be the surrogates in this debate. Oh, absolutely, because of course you know Mr. Trudeau can can go to Washington and speak to Mr. Trump, but you know that has you know, some value, but it's fairly limited uh, because you know Mr. Trump doesn't play into the, the the U.S. political process. But you know ultimately we know that what matters in in Washington and in the states are votes. And 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 if you have um, you know state governors, legislators, and people in Congress who feel that uh, their voters are, are may not be happy with them if if something happens because they're going to lose their jobs, uh, then you know they they don't want that to happen. They they don't want all of a sudden to to see companies not invest or leave uh, as a result of 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 the termination of NAFTA. And 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 it it is really with them that we need to work, and we have worked at all levels, including also. U.S. businesses. Let's not forget that Canadian and Mexican businesses have been working very closely with their their counterparts in the U.S. to try to ha- really have this common front uh, vis-a-vis the, those kinds of policies that we're seeing. Now, to what extent that will work remains to be seen because um, you know to, it, it it appears that that Mr. Trump and and, and Lighthizer are. are Annoying, not so responsive to the demands and and uh, and requests of of the business community or even agricultures, which in in a way is surprising because these are supposed to be the the ones you know that that Mr. Trump is 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 uh, trying to to promote and defend. If he's trying to create jobs, well, you know the the those jobs are going to create be created by U.S. businesses, so he should pay attention to them. But it's not clear that he does. It's not clear that he pays attention to anyone. That's the problem. <laughs> and on that point, uh, that very poignant element. I think we'll uh, we'll have to leave it. Patrick, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. No problem. My pleasure. Take care. Patrick LeBon, of course, Associate Professor at uh, the Graduate School of Public International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.